You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. On any given day, the average adult human being makes 35,000 conscious decisions. And there is a theory that when each of these decisions is made, a parallel universe is created based upon the opposite decision to the one you chose. So let's say it's a bright sunny day and you have to decide whether to take the bus to work or to take advantage of the sun and walk instead. So you decide to walk and you arrive at work without incident. But in a newly created parallel universe, you decide to take the bus. And on that particular day, you just happen to sit next to the man or woman of your dreams. So the flow of your life is forever altered based upon that decision. And the fascinating thing is that not every decision would result in such a life-changing outcome. The effects of some decisions would actually be quite small, but just enough to make your life in that parallel universe just ever so slightly different. So just think, 10 years ago, so just think, I made the decision. 11 years ago, to start this I podcast. made the decision to start this podcast. But what if I decided not to? Would I have chosen to do something else? How would my life have been different? And would someone else have decided to start a show called The Twilight Zone Podcast if I hadn't done it? At a later time or in another place? Our lives are a tapestry made up of the decisions. A tapestry that we make. made up of the decisions that we make. But if this theory is correct, we are creating 35,000 parallel universes every day because of those decisions. Some will be so similar to ours that the difference is almost imperceptible, and others that are so different that they seem like a completely different reality, where someone, someone else, else is walking, in, is our walking shoes. in our shoes. These are big questions. So these but... are big questions, but when we make the decision to enter the fifth dimension tonight, they're not questions that this episode seems to be asking. Not at first. We seem to be in for an altogether different tale when we meet the wife and daughter of astronaut Robert Gaines, understandably concerned about his impending journey into space. That was Colonel Conacher, honey. He says Daddy is just fine. Will he, will he be going up soon? In just about an hour, that's what Colonel Conacher said. Do you want to go back to sleep? I don't blame you. I can't sleep either. I'll tell you what. I'll make some coffee for me and some cocoa for you. And you wash your face and hands and comb your hair. And then we'll turn on the television set, okay? Okay. Unbeknownst to them, this is not a case of whether Robert Gaines will be back 
this is not a case of whether Robert which Gaines will be back, Robert but Gaines rather back. which version of Robert Gaines will, will be back. Robert Gaines and will the Robert Gaines forever, forever be trapped, be trapped in, in the, the parallel? parallel? In the vernacular of space, this is T minus one hour. 60 minutes before a human being named Major Robert Gaines is lifted off from the Mother Earth and rocketed into the sky, farther and longer than any man ahead of him. Call this one one of the first faltering steps of man to sever the umbilical cord of gravity and stretch out a fingertip toward an unknown. Shortly, we'll join this astronaut named Gaines and embark on an adventure because the environs overhead, the stars, the sky, the infinite space, are all part of a vast question mark known as the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on March 14th, 1963, written by Rod Serling and directed by Alan Crossland Jr. Again, one of our more straightforward and slightly expositional Serling opening narrations, but one that I think is giving me a vibe of a cousin of this episode and when the sky was open. One that's suggesting that this is another episode about people stepping into the unknown and starting to prod at the rules of the universe that we really shouldn't be prodding at. And while that isn't necessarily true, I feel that is a canny piece of misdirection by Serling that we'll come back to later on. So once again, now we are pretty far down the road in the Twilight Zone, fourth season, out of five. So some of our longtime directors are leaving and some new blood is coming on board. Tonight, director Alan Crossland Jr. makes his Twilight Zone debut, and he's going to stick around for four episodes. This is his only season four episode, but he'll return in season five with the episodes The Old Man in the Cave, The Seventh is Made Up of Phantoms, and Ring-a-Ding Girl. Ring-a-Ding. Now, there isn't a huge amount of information or trivia about him out there. 73 directing credits doesn't seem like a lot, on IMDb, but when you consider that those credits are the count of the individual series names, and within those are multiple episodes of each of those series, that is a lot. For example, he directed 22 episodes of Bat Masterson, and 19 episodes of Peter Gunn, 16 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and even a couple episodes of The Outer Limits. So, his career spanned decades, and through the 70s and 80s, he directed episodes uh, favorites like The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Wonder Woman, and The Fall Guy. So while this might not be a man who you can hold up an award-winning movie as proof of his worth, I guess what we need to remember is that he was a hard-working director who put in that time in the trenches making those bread-and-butter popular shows that everyone was enjoying at the time. So he might not have been a marquee name, but he was a man who made a lot of people happy. Now, when we first meet Major Robert Gaines, he's rather awkwardly being helped into a horizontal molded chair that appears to be helping him acclimate to that position for when he's in the ship uh, but the episode has this quite somber tone to it and the music is like a ticking clock and is signaling exactly where we are in the story of these people it's not unique to a trip into space it's that time before anything in life that makes us nervous or anxious where pretty much all the preparations are made but all that's left to do is wait so we make some small talk and have those last minute conversations and I think the episode does a good job of making us experience this period with Robert Gaines kind of an odd feeling knowing I'll be moving around the earth for a week well, that's progress Gus Grissom went 302 miles Glenn made three orbits Shira handled six and you Bobby boy are gonna go round and round 
And when you come back down, maybe we'll be that much closer to filing a claim on some more Sky. So let's take a minute and look at where the seeds of this episode came from. Because, you know, the Twilight Zone is over 60 years old. And because of how much time has passed, it's easy to look at this as yet another episode that features an astronaut or astronauts. But actually, when we compare it to something like Death Ship or Elegy, the parallel is presenting us with much more of a realistic view of space travel. And, you know, this is akin to today, you know, you look at a movie like The Martian, right, which is very grounded in science as opposed to something like, say, Interstellar. Because even with, you know, Christopher Nolan's grounded take on material throughout all his films, uh, that is a little more fantastical. The reason that this is the case in this episode is because it comes off the back of some very real-world events at the time. Let's just listen again to what Colonel Conacher said earlier on. Gus Grissom went 302 miles. Glenn made three orbits. Share a handle six, and you, Bobby Boy, are going to go round and round. So this was an age where science fiction was becoming science fact, and Serling was sequelizing these real-life achievements by American astronauts. Gus Grissom was the pilot of the second U.S. manned space flight on the Liberty Bell 7, and on July 21st, 1961, in the break between Season 2 and 3 of The Twilight Zone, the Liberty Bell 7 took a suborbital flight that lasted 15 minutes and 37 seconds. Then on February 20th, 1962, right between the first airings of, of Piano in the House and the last rites of Jeff Myrtlebank, John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth when he circled the globe three times in four hours and 56 minutes. Side note, Alan Shepard, he gets no respect because he was the first American in space, but he didn't orbit the Earth. So everybody talks about John Glenn, but I got a shout out to Alan Shepard here. So he's like the lost name of this, you know, first Americans in space pantheon here. Uh, but finally, another name that was mentioned, uh, Wally Shira. On October 3rd, 1962, between seasons three and four of The Twilight Zone, orbited the Earth six times in the nine-hour Mercury-Atlantis-8 mission. So space travel at that time was about how long can you stay up there? How long can we go? How far can we go? Visiting the moon was still a few years away, but this was all happening there and then, and Serling was right on the back of it. In his story, Gaines is aiming to stay up there for a week and keep going round and round. So let's see how successful he is. Phoebus 10, your voice transmissions are starting to fade very badly. Capcom, Capcom, this is Phoebus 10. I've lost contact with you. I've lost radar here. I've lost radar. We don't have contact here either. No contact at all. Capcom Tech calling Phoebus 10. Capcom. Capcom, this is Phoebus 10. While the control room struggles to make contact with Major Gaines, let's meet the man who played him. Major Robert Gaines is played by Steve Forrest, and he was born in 1925 in Huntsville, Texas. As listeners to the podcast will know, over the years now, you've come to know that I am a native Texan, a proud Texan. So, uh, shout out to a fellow native Texan in Steve Forrest. Now, his birth name was William Forrest Andrews, so it seems that when he became an actor, he changed his first name and dropped his last name, Andrews. But one of his siblings, who was also an actor, didn't drop their last name. And that was his brother Dana Andrews, who we saw in the last episode, No Time Like the Past. The two of them had appeared together in the film Sealed Cargo in 1951. And I think if you close your eyes and listen to Steve Forrest's voice, that's when he is most like Dana Andrews to me. They sound very similar. 
So a young Steve Forrest initially embarked on a military career in the Army and rose to the rank of sergeant. But when he left the military, everything he did was connected with acting or the arts in some way. And when he was working as an apprentice, carpenter, and set builder in a San Diego theater, one of the resident actors there saw some potential in him. So Steve was given a small part in a play as a bellboy, and that actor's name was Gregory Peck. He later became a contract player with MGM. With his 6'3 frame and handsome features, he enjoyed a long career, mainly on the small screen, until 2003 when he retired and then passed away at the old age of 87 in 2013. So how is he in this? Well, I'm going to hold off my thoughts on that for now, until we get to a certain point in this episode. So let's stick a pin in that for now, because the next time we see Major Gaines, he's lying in a hospital bed with no memory of what happened or how he got back down to Earth. Well, all along I thought there was some kind of malfunction up there. Fuel or propulsion or just communication. Maybe the malfunction was closer to home. Maybe it was right up here between my ears. Maybe astronaut Robert Gaines went off the tracks. Maybe he couldn't cut the mustard. Look, you talk like that. You think like that, and you'll come around to believing it. And that's stupid, Bob. We're dealing with nine natural laws, plus a whole string of imponderables. And reasons are going to come out. Legitimate, rational reasons. Well, you just lie there and breathe through your nose. I'll call Helen again and tell her you're resting, and you'll be home soon. Will I? Will I be home? Yeah. Unless you persuade all the people around here that you need an attendant. Dream good. I'll see you later. So Serling is sowing seeds of possibility here for what is to come, keeping us off balance with possibilities. So when Gaines is acting strangely later on, perhaps we'll wonder if he's actually had some sort of breakdown. Just one of the possibilities on offer. But what we end up seeing next is that when Major Gaines returns home, he keeps noticing things that aren't quite how he remembers them. He doesn't recall there being a fence in front of his house. His rank is now different from what he remembers. And interestingly, on first look, it, it seems like the beginning of this episode is padding, where you go to his house and you see the, the wife and the daughter and they're reading the newspaper and watching the TV. But very importantly, you see the outside of the house and you see there's no white picket fence there. So obviously on first watch, you're not paying attention to those things. You think it's just an establishing shot of a street. But here it plays in where you don't know, oh, well, was there a white fence there? I don't remember. I want to say something to you now. I, um, I don't know what happened up there. I have no idea. But uh, I know you don't want to talk about it. That's why we haven't said anything. But uh, something must have happened, Bob. Some delusions. Some distortions, like that fence outside the house. I don't remember it. And yet you said it had been there when we bought the house. And that business with Bill Conacher. He told me he'd called you before the flight. He made it a point to tell me. And then afterward, afterward he said there'd been no such phone conversation. It's unimportant. It's insignificant, really. And yet... And yet it all seems to be part of some sort of crazy pattern. 
Now, I wonder if Sterling is riffing on some audience expectations here, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But first, let's meet the woman who is having a difficult time reconciling the man who left with the man who came back. Helen Gaines is played by Jacqueline Scott, and she would have been in her early 30s by this point. And if we delve into her history, it's clear that she had performing in her blood from an early age. She won a tap dancing competition at the age of three, and began acting professionally with a small theater company at the age of 17, and then moved to New York, where she continued to study acting. So she was very much an actor's actor, working on Broadway and on screen, and one of her first movie roles was in the William Castle gimmicky shocker Macabre, whose poster boasted that audience members were insured for $1,000 in case they died from fright. And it's on the set of that film where she met her husband, Gene Lesser, who she was married to for 62 years. No mean feat in Hollywood. And with 102 acting credits to her name, she really was one of our hard-working actors of the day. And while this is her only Twilight Zone, she appeared in several of the most beloved shows of the 50s and 60s and 70s, including The Outer Limits, Planet of the Apes, and The Fugitive, where she played Richard Kimball's sister. And while she did slow down some in the 80s and took the 90s off for the most part, she retired from the screen after two one-off roles in 2004 and 2009. And unfortunately, we've only just lost Jacqueline Scott on July 23rd, 2020, at the age of 89. I like her a lot in this. I think she plays the part of the worried wife in quite an understated way. Her scenes at the beginning, especially when she's on the phone to the colonel and pretending that everything is okay, are nicely done. And then when she's gently trying to break it to her husband that he just doesn't seem right, I think she really shows her talent there. Martin Grahams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic quotes her as saying, I was thrilled to be doing the show because it was one of the most popular shows on the air at the time and rightfully so, with its wonderful scripts. This was a particularly special episode, since, as you know, Rod Sterling wrote it. I was happy to be working again with Steve Forrest, since we had done the pilot of Wide Country together. An added bonus to the whole experience was that Rod Sterling called me afterwards and said that he had never written a script for a woman, but was going to write one for me. It never materialized, but the idea of it was a lovely compliment. So in this first half, what I really like is that there are still several possibilities of what's going on here. Has Gaines just cracked when he went up into space, or is it something else? Now, let's go downstairs and have a cup of coffee. And don't let a, a white fence and a promotion end the world for you. If that's as far as it goes, I'll try not to. But what if, what if other things... So this is the scene where Gaines kisses his wife. And we see that when they kiss, Helen backs away. They can reason away all of the other strange things that have happened since Robert has come back. But when they kiss, she feels that something is different. It's as if she's kissing another man. Mark Granite recalls this about the scene, quote, Censorship was so strict at that time. We tried something that was a shade too subtle, but basically I didn't want him to find out he was on the wrong planet until he went to bed with the woman he thought was his wife. The sexual habits were different. There's a suggestion of it, but it's insufficient. Unless you're looking for it, I don't think you'll find it. So let's take a little detour here. That is a quote from producer Brick Granite. But as we know, when the great Buck Houghton left the Twilight Zone after season three, 
The producer that took over was Herbert Hirschman. Now, he produced season four up until Printer's Devil, but that had an associate producer, Murray Goldman, on it, too. Then the next episode, No Time Like the Past, doesn't credit Herbert Hirschman as producer, just Murray Goldman as associate producer. And then for this episode, we have Burt Granite. Now, Granite is significant to the Twilight Zone because he produced the time element, which was that backdoor Twilight Zone pilot that appeared on the Weston House Desilu Playhouse. But what happened to Herbert Hirschman? Well, on January 1st, 1963, his contract with CBS expired. And at the same time, he received an offer from Herbert Brodkin, who he'd worked with on Playhouse 90. And Brodkin wanted Herbert Hirschman as the producer of a show they were putting on in London. And Hirschman says this in the Twilight Zone Companion, quote, The opportunity of going to Europe? I never lived or worked there before. Superseded my interest in doing another three or four Twilight Zones. So, out goes Herbert Hirschman. Um... I'd like uh, Colonel William Conacher, please. Please sit up. <clears throat> I was just uh, going to call Bill Conacher to ask him if he'd like to. Like to what? Come over for dinner. So here, Serling is playing with another possibility, that Robert Gaines isn't confused because he's had some kind of mental breakdown, but because he's come back wrong. There are echoes of the 1955 British production, The Quartermass Experiment here. Perhaps he's gone to space and been infected or overcome by something. He might not even know it, but he's a ticking time bomb waiting for an alien presence to emerge. And again, this idea of humanity going somewhere where it shouldn't and coming back altered somehow. This is an idea that is very prevalent in science fiction, especially of this era. Now, as any good Twilight Zone fan should know, uh, William Shatner, who stars in two episodes here and, of course, goes on to star as Captain Kirk in Star Trek, he was in an episode of The Outer Limits called Cold Hands, Warm Heart, and it's a similar idea. It's about an astronaut who goes into space, he blacks out, he comes back, he's different. Now, he's going under physical changes, but there was a tension there between him and his wife, and more recently, there was the 1999 film The Astronaut's Wife, starring Johnny Depp and Charlie Theron. Uh, Johnny Depp plays an astronaut who goes into space. Uh, his mission loses communication with the Earth. He comes back. The wife suspects there might not be something right with him etc, etc. Again, these stories go into very different places, but it shows you how this is a good jumping-off point for any kind of science fiction tale. And getting back to the episode at hand, I feel that, you know, we've talked a lot about throughout all of our episodes here in Season 4, as you guys have known have been listening all season. There's all this talk of, is Season 4 too long, and so on, and here we have an episode where I feel Serling uses that time really well. He puts all these possibilities out there for the audience to pick up on, and you don't know if he's been replaced by an alien or perhaps been influenced by one like those other stories I mentioned. But then we get to that halfway point twist. Really a very strange collection of delusions. A white picket fence, a story, his own rank. And the last thing he said was he doubted very much if President Kennedy would pin any medals on him. President who? Kennedy. Someone named John Kennedy. Who's John Kennedy? 
Someone who Colonel Gaines has decided is President of the United States. And I share your bewilderment. I never heard of him either. So I really like this use of the halfway twist by Sterling. This is the point where an episode like Third from the Sun would end. The point where you realize that everything you've just watched, you were watching from the wrong perspective. We've been viewing it from the point of view that everything else was the same, but he was different, when in fact, he is the constant in this. And when we have this twist revealed, there's still a good 20 minutes left in the episode to go. Could they have told this story in the length of a non-season 4 Twilight Zone? Maybe, but I think this is a fascinating way of telling a Twilight Zone story. What happens after the reveal? There's so many seasons 1, 2, 3, and 5 episodes where there's this massive twist, and you say, well, what next? And in these season 4 episodes, for better or for worse sometimes, we get to see what happens next. What you just told me is fantastic. How can you possibly... It's incredible. Incredible. I helped build that spacecraft. I know it very well. And this one, it's not the same one we sent off. It's almost a twin to it, down to the very last nut and bolt, but it's simply not the same spacecraft. It's a different vehicle. It's almost as if it came out of the same mold, but every now and then, and the wiring, and the control panel, and in the structure, as a tiny insignificant alteration. You add them all up and you come up with one very irrevocable fact. Colonel Gaines went up in one spacecraft, but he's obviously come back in another. That leaves us with two alternatives. One, Colonel Gaines actually blacked out and has no knowledge of what occurred. Or two, that Colonel Gaines is not who we think he is. So how feasible is all of this? That a person could jump into a parallel world, a world that is similar to our own, but decisions have been made that are as small as whether someone decides they have sugar in their coffee or as large as JFK not being the president of the United States. The TV show Sliders was built on this very premise and used to great effect, and I also recommend the TV show Fringe, which is a more recent show that dabbles in this idea of parallel universes and slight changes here and slight changes there. Also, as y'all know from listening to me several years on the podcast here, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and Star Trek franchise is famous for its mirror universe. Whenever you see fiction showing an evil counterpart or duplicate, they have a goatee because of Star Trek's first foray into the mirror universe that it created, and Spock, of course, had a goatee, so you see that as a trope, both in comedic ways, sending it up, so to speak, and in real ways to kind of signify that, oh, something's different here. All that to say, is there any real-world credibility to this? Well, I did look it up, and it gets very complicated depending on where you look, but the website xemplore.com does a good job of breaking it down for... I won't presume people like you, but at least for people like me. Now on the subject of parallel universes, I of course mentioned Star Trek, and that is one of the most famous uses of the parallel universe. But, you know, in fiction, it's very prevalent. Uh, Another big fan of mine, as you'll all know from listening to the podcast over the years, is DC Comics, right? Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, right? And uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths is a big event, uh, and that... 
was created to kind of explain why there were different versions of different characters. A very clever use, and that is what creators do in fictional worlds, to kind of um, use uh, in-universe reasoning for why there's, you know, why the 30s Batman is different than the 80s Batman, for example. There was a very interesting story called Crisis on Two Earths, where the Justice League of our Earth, uh, the again, the Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, uh, comes into conflict with a crime syndicate on Earth 3, and that is Ultraman, Owlman, and Superwoman, etc., etc. And Owlman is the real villain of the piece because he comes to the conclusion that if there truly are infinite Earths and every choice you make is made differently by another you on another Earth, the only choice that has any consequence is if you decide just to destroy the entire universe, which is, of course, something the Justice League must stop, but it's something interesting to think about. Now, it's an evil thought, but there's a warped logic to it. Now, excuse my comic book tangent there, but I guess my point is, don't be like an Owlman. Even if there are theoretical other yous out there making other choices, this is the reality we live in. These are the people you interact with. This is the world that we exist in. We can't jump between them, and that's probably for the best, <laughs> right? There are reasons why, even if these theoretical other dimensions exist, that there are barriers between them. And I mentioned Fringe. That show explores what if we can cross them and what dangers come from crossing over to other dimensions. So there you have it. Just know that despite whatever theoretical other versions of you exist making other theoretical choices, the choices you make here are what really matter. So in the end, Game seems to slip back into his own reality, which is a weak point for me, honestly, in the episode. The mechanisms of how he had transversed through dimensions are never quite explained. So I prefer a little more hard sci-fi uh, because, as we mentioned earlier, this is taking a very realistic approach to its science, more akin to The Martian than Interstellar, to use that example again. So for him to just go to his ship, which throughout the episode, by the way, the government had been studying it and realized it was slightly different, just like Gaines himself, but he goes to the ship and he just blinks out of the alternate dimension he had been in, returns home in his spaceship. Now... We do get the indication that the other him was experiencing something similar because he had come across on the radar here on our Earth, so he has his own Twilight Zone adventure in store for him. But as we close out, Robert Gaines, he returns home to a house without a white picket fence, to a wife who kisses him with joy and does not draw back, and a daughter who recognized him as her daddy, because there was a very emotional beat earlier in the episode where on the parallel Earth, Robert Gaines asked his daughter, who am I? And she says, I don't know. And here he asks her, who am I? And she says, you're my daddy. And all is well in the Twilight Zone. Who? Something, something happened. I know you're not going to believe this. I'm not absolutely certain that I believe it myself. There's another dimension. I don't know how it exists or where it exists. But there's another world parallel to ours. The same people, the same places, most of the same chronology of events, except now and then there's something a little bit different. How do you know all this? Because I was there, General. I was there for almost a week. That's impossible. We only lost you for about six hours. We had contact with you all the rest of the time. I can't help that, sir. During that six hours, I lived out a week. Doing what? Looking at our counterparts, looking at us. Us? Us, as we exist in a parallel world. One that exists alongside, but which we can't see. 
It's the world I stumbled into. I don't know how. Some kind of space-time continuum, some warpage. But there's a doorway up there somewhere into it. It exists. Now, The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Scott Zacree has been my number one resource for all things Twilight Zone since I was a kid. You have heard me recount many times here on the podcast how I used to sit on the floor of the bookstore and peruse through it, and then one day my dad finally bought it, and then we had it, and he since passed it on to me, so I have a, a very worn copy of The Twilight Zone Companion that I reference throughout this podcast. And Mark Scott Zacree and I are in step with many, many things, but I must say not on this episode, because in summary, he had this to say about the parallel. Quote, Although an interesting concept, the parallel suffers from flat acting, particularly in the lead. As a result, what might have been as engrossing as And When the Sky Was Opened never generates much energy. And I disagree. Uh, this episode takes that wonderful conceit that And When the Sky Was Opened had, that sometimes when we step out of where nature has intended where we should be, we are stepping into things we don't understand, where rules exist that we cannot comprehend, but it takes it in a different direction. And what Zakri calls flat, I call realistic. Again, the Martian comparison to Interstellar, for example. This is the whole point. Serling is building a story on what has recently become science fact in the 1960s, and adding an extra layer to it. It's not about creating a world that is so different to our own that Gaines notices it straight away. It's about the small things. It's about the small decisions that we make, creating small waves in these other realities, and the big decisions that we make, making bigger waves. And the performances aren't flat either. Jacqueline Scott pitches her performance perfectly. Sometimes the worried wife waiting for her husband to come home, other times scared of who the man is who did come home. And Steve Forrest isn't flat either. In an episode that is building upon the reality of what's going on in space travel at that time, he is more aligned with a genuine astronaut than the kind of astronauts you hear on radio programs like Dimension X and sometimes even the Twilight Zone, where the space travelers are more like ham and eggs working guys you'd have fixing your car than actual astronauts. If you look up any of the real-life astronauts that this episode mentions and look at what they went on to do, they often went into politics. You'll see that they're aligned with this betrayal. The respectable, clean-cut, upstanding American hero type. So for me, this is everything that I want from a Season 4 Twilight Zone mini-movie. It meets expectations, but subverts them too. And while I love when Sterling is writing a story that has something to say morally about the world we live in, I absolutely love when he just tries to tell a strange tale too. He uses his running time well here. And while sure, you could trim some scenes out here and there, that's true of most things. There's no filler, just a gradual building of intrigue. And I do want to speak briefly on what has been... Uh, amusing habit of the Twilight Zone, something that could be described as the improper escalation of stakes. For example, one of my favorite episodes, as you all know, A World of Difference. And in that episode, the main character finds himself in a world where the life he thought was real was actually a movie. And after discovering that his wife and daughter don't exist, he calls his place of work, and that is the escalation... <laughs> of him discovering that he's in a different reality. Similarly to Walking Distance. The main character, Martin Sloan, sees his mother and father, who have been dead for years, and it doesn't hit him what has happened until he sees a neighbor working on a brand new 1930 so-and-so Ford Model T. <laughs> and this improper escalation of stakes 
is just, you know, it's part, you have to tell the story in a certain beat. I mean, act one, act two, act three, especially in short television, I understand the structure, but it is interesting to see the order of events. Clearly, seeing your dead parents should be the signifier to you that something is amiss here, not a teenager with a brand new car he says they just finished last month, but it's 20 years in the past. Or like in a world of difference where, oh, I worked there, I've worked there for 20 years, when it's already been established that his wife and daughter do not exist, nor does his home. So all that to say, I wanted to call out and give credit to this episode for having a more logical escalation of the reveals of the magnitude of differences and the reality that Robert Gaines finds himself in. Because even in those other episodes I mentioned, there's not a parallel universe reality, but they are a different reality of a kind. Perhaps it's the hour-long format. Obviously, the story cannot unravel in the same kind of way in a half-hour time slot as it can in an hour time slot. So here, I feel that they have cracked that mold of the, sometimes, as I said, amusing improper order of stakes <laughs> in the escalation of the information that the character discovers. This is an episode like most four-season episodes. I don't revisit very often, but revisiting it again for the podcast, it has exceeded my memory and is a very solid fourth-season story, I feel. And a lingering thought in the mind of the viewer about all the crossroads that we face every day day. and And the the decisions decisions that we have to make. make. This This episode episode is a reminder reminder to always always try and make make the best best decision so so that that the version of you you who is living the best life life is this this version of you you, and not the version version living who is living in in the the parallel. parallel. Major Robert Gaines, a latter-day voyager, just returned from an adventure. Submitted to you without any recommendations as to belief or disbelief. You can accept or reject. You pay your money and you take your choice. But credulous or incredulous, don't bother to ask anyone for proof that it could happen. The obligation is a reverse challenge. Prove that it couldn't. This happens to be the Twilight Zone. Thanks for listening to the Twilight Zone podcast. Now, let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's coming up next. A new author joins the ranks of the Twilight Zone crew when John Furia Jr. gives us several stunningly new twists to a classic character in I Dream of Jeannie. Join Howard Morris, Patricia Berry, and Loring Smith as they take their trip into the Twilight Zone. Who? 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 Who are you expecting? Who? I'm the genie of the lamp, that's who. Aladdin, magic, the whole bit. If if you are the genie, then I must be the master of the lamp. Big deal. Master of the lamp. All right, you got yourself a free wish. I can't believe it. Anything I want in the whole world. Anything. But only one wish. 